Greetings, and welcome to Episode 8 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, a consultant with Capco Energy Solutions out of Dallas, Texas. And today I'm excited. We're going to be taking a look at politics. And this being the day after the first presidential uh, debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I think it's appropriate for us to step back and take a look at some of the history behind politics and how we got to the point where we are. Um, look at some of the data from past presidential elections. And what I really want to focus on most is who the people are that tend to vote most often and what some of the common uh, demographics are and encourage everybody out there who is maybe not registered to vote or is thinking about voting to get out there, cast your choice, and be aware of the ways that people are engaging you politically and tracking your information to uh, make their decisions about how they run their campaigns or how they contact you and ask for your support. Uh, so first off, let's start with a little history of data and politics. Uh, now, a lot of the information that I'm going to talk about came from a podcast, uh, What's the Point?, which is from 538. They did a great four-part series on the data of politics uh, over several uh, different podcast episodes this year. So if you haven't seen one of those uh, or listened to one of those episodes, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Please check them out. It gives a really great history of politics from the late 1800s through the primaries. Uh, I'm only going to hit some of the high points and, and go over uh, basically from the end of the 1800s to uh, where we ended up in the primaries uh, this season. And so back in 1891, there was a fellow named James Clarkson. He was the Republican National Chairman, Republican National Committee Chairman, and he assembled a file that contained age, occupation, residence, and other facts about voters, and listed them alphabetically so they could reach out to those voters directly. He was one of the first people to pioneer what was basically a voter database. Um, before this point, uh, party elite chose candidates, so. Candidates didn't really engage the public. They just worked with party elite to, uh, to either get on the ticket or get elected. Um, but starting around this time, candidates really started reaching out to uh, voters directly and appealing uh, for them to, uh, to elect them. And so there were some shenanigans back then. There were people uh, that would offer booze to, uh, uh, to voters who came out and voted for them. And voting was a very public act. It was something that you... Um, you did and you advertised who you voted for. There was no confidentiality. Um, and then that changed as things went along. And later on when TV uh, came out, suddenly candidates could reach the majority of voters just by running ads on three major networks. I think there was a stat from the What's the Point podcast that politicians or candidates could reach about 80% of, uh, of the eligible voters by just advertising on those three networks. So it was a great way, um, very cost-effective, minimal effort way to get your message out to a large group of people. But you had no control over who uh, you would be reaching. And so um, later on in the uh, 1900s, people started using direct mail. They figured out they could purchase subscriber lists of certain, uh, certain magazines and know... Um, the person's location based on their address and what they subscribe to, the content that they were interested in. So they could start targeting certain groups with certain messages. So if you, uh, you know, like me, if you live in Texas and you could get your hands on a subscriber list of uh, people that subscribe to Guns and Ammo, 
you might be able to infer what their positions are on things like gun control. Um, so this was one of the first uh, times in uh, America's history where we started to target specific groups um, with certain policies. And then in the um, 90s and in, up into 2004, uh, groups started doing micro-targeting. So they started honing the information that they had uh, to define smaller and smaller groups that they could cater specific messages to. And that hit its peak basically in 2004 with Howard Dean. He pioneered uh, individual targeting. And he coalesced state voter lists together and appended commercial data with it and was really able through email campaigns and other things to start targeting individual people with personalized messages. Up until that point, uh, the Republicans had really dominated uh, the data uh, targeting and, and data profiling. But in 2004, 2008, that started to change. And Barack Obama continued the... Uh, the path that Howard Dean set upon with individual targeting, and that's actually continued with the Democratic Party uh, through today. The 538 podcast goes through a, a really good history of what's happened um, in the 2000s and how there was a shift from the Republicans being ahead in the data game to the Democrats, the, the Democrats taking the lead, and then the Republicans trying to play a little bit of catch-up. So uh, they actually go out and visit um, a couple of different primaries and, and uh uh, polling, or excuse me, not polling places, um, campaign headquarters um, to see the types of information that people are collecting and how they do it. Um, this trend c continued in 2012 in Obama's second campaign where they used models that they had developed before and they refined them and they started actually taking individual data and feeding it into the model and testing the model to judge its effectiveness. And I got my hands on one of these uh, voter files. Typically, um, there's a lot of private companies out there and even some, uh, some state-hosted sites where you can validate somebody's, uh, in, in the state sites, you can validate someone's voter registration and how long they've been registered. On some of the private sites, uh, groups have assembled uh, lists of voters and their history of voting. And a lot of that is only available to you if you are a politician who's actually running a campaign or if you are uh, doing academic research. And so uh, under uh, a request for academic research for this podcast, I was able to get a file from nationbuilder.com that showed a list of all of the registered voters that they had in the uh, county where I live. It was about 15,000 voters. Uh, they had information on their name, uh, several email addresses. They had places for Twitter and Facebook usernames and a few other social media sites. None of that was filled out. Um, they had addresses. They had uh, which party they were affiliated with, whether they were declared. Um, they also had uh, a file of results of elections that they had voted in. Now, I, I do have to say I was a little bit disappointed in this because after living in uh, the area where I've lived for almost 10 years, my name wasn't in the file. And so I don't know if that was a technical glitch or if they started collecting within the last four years so they didn't have a record of my, uh, my participation in the last presidential election. Um, so you have to take with a grain of salt the, uh, the, the breadth of their voters that they have. But for the voters that they have on file, it is pretty surprising how much information they have about each person. 
And when you think about all of the information that's available out there online through APIs, uh, it's really interesting to think about the cohesive view of a person that a candidate can develop. You hear a lot of businesses talk about the 360-degree view of the customer and taking their internal CRM data and supplementing it with uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, other social media uh, feeds to develop uh, a complete view of the customer. And that's really what these candidates are doing. Uh, but they also have the ability to get access to these, uh, these voting records, which uh, is a more holistic picture than a lot of companies can get about their customers. So it was a really fascinating uh, industry for me to take a look at because I'd never delved into that type of data before. Um, so if you, if you have some research interest, you might check those out. Um, I didn't find any of them that have free sites, but like I said, a lot of states do have sites where you can go and if you know a person's um, name and potentially address or driver's license number, you can actually go do a search for them and verify their voter, uh, their voter ID and their, vo and their affiliation. So it, it actually presents an opportunity for a, a site that collects some information about you. They may be able to go through these other sites and glean additional information. Um, also, one note is the laws vary from state to state on who can use this data and how. Some states, it's completely open. Some states, like I said, you have to be running a campaign or doing academic research. Uh, so that's basically a history of uh, data in politics and how it's collected. I want to take a look a little bit before we get to voters um, about the historical voting trends by state. And uh, there's a really interesting graphic um, that I'll link to in the show notes that shows the, um, the history of, uh, of voting. And it shows a maps of the U.S. going from 1876, the year Texas A&M was found, whoop, um, all the way up to 2012 and shows the state-by-state -state breakout of Democrat versus Republican. And it's really interesting when you look at the history uh, uh, like that where you can see the flip-flop between Republican and Democrat majorities as far as which way states uh, elected. And so you can see certain times where, uh, you know, like Democrats got a landslide one time and then Republicans got it immediately after that potentially shows some unhappiness with uh, the way the, the previous president um, handled their affairs. Um, I took a look and, and just quickly grabbed the most Democratic and the most uh, Republican uh, elections, and it looked to me like the 1932 election um, where uh, FDR beat out Herbert Hoover uh, was the most Democratic. I mean, there were about uh, probably 45 states that, that fell to uh, the Democratic uh, electoral vote uh, against only five that were Republican. And uh, FDR won that race with 57% of the vote versus uh, f about 40% for Herbert Hoover. And then in 1972, it was uh, the reverse. So that was the Nixon-McGovern uh, race, and there was maybe only one state that, uh, that went uh, Democrat when you look at it at a state level. And... Um, Nixon got about 61% of the vote versus 38% for McGovern. So take a look at that. Uh, really interesting um, turn of tides and, and visual perspective on uh, elections over the years. Now I'm going to start turning my attention to individual voters. And the first thing that I want to talk about is turnout rates. Um, so I found a, uh, a study of uh, election results for um, 
going back a few different decades, um, and it, it recorded basically voter participation per country in different elections. Now, the data on this, again, is kind of sparse, and so uh, what you'll see in the show notes, I cut it down to just the years since 2000 um, to try to get more meaningful rankings. Um, but I, what I, my goal here was to look at um, the U.S. Uh, voter turnout versus other countries. And it was pretty shocking to see how low we are. Uh, so the U.S. ranked uh, number 159th out of 196 data points with just over 55% of uh, average voter turnout. And my case to you today is we can and should do better than that. Um, we have so much uh, media coverage of campaigns and we have so much ability for individuals to get involved in our democracy and, and to vote for their choice of leader that we really should have a higher participation rate than that. And so I've listed out the, uh, the entire uh, group of 196, and you can see um, the average turnout percentage uh, and how many measurement points they had in the, in the data that I found. And so you can see, uh, like, Vietnam is number two, uh, Rwanda is number three, Laos is uh, number one, all of those hovering up around 98, 99% of the vote. Cuba is at 95, Australia is at 94, which is pretty incredible for a country that size. Um, but then you've got to go down quite a bit, I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling to get all the way down to the 159th spot for the U.S. Um, and the countries that are around the U.S. are Honduras is right there neck and neck with us, Venezuela. Um, Jordan and the Republic of Korea. So uh, I think it would do us well to uh, to think about ways that we can engage people and encourage everyone to uh, to get out and vote more. I've also included several graphs, and I'm going to link to those in the show notes, and um, you'll see in the sources where these came from. But um, there's a graph on voter turnout rates from 1916 to 2014, and a couple interesting things here. Um, Participation in the non-presidential election cycles uh, trails by about 15 to 20 percent from what it does in the presidential uh, ones, which is not a not a big surprise, um, but it does go to show you that um, in general, if you look at an average, um, there's probably about 40 percent of uh, eligible voters turnout on non-presidential years, and about 55 to 60 percent turnout on um, presidential election years. And so even that shows that it's a, it's a small minority that are selecting a lot of our local and state leaders in the off cycles and only a slight, slightly greater than 50% majority that's picking uh, during the presidential elections. And so I again encourage you to get out there, research the issues, and, uh, and get involved uh, because it would be great to have, you know, with a participation rate like 94% like Australia has, uh, I feel like you could take a lot of uh, a lot of solace in the way that the elections end up, or at least um, feel like you did your part to make a difference and and vote. If we have 40 to 50 percent of our eligible voters not even voting, we're leaving major decisions that affect the entire country up to just a small group of people. So let me take it down one more level of detail, and let's look at who the average voter is. So I've got some graphs here that show. Uh, voting population turnout rates by age, by education, uh, by race and ethnicity, and then 
um, the percentage of the electorate that is non-Hispanic white and how that's changed over the years. Um, so first off, looking at age, um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the uh, uh, the adage that uh, it's it's harder to get younger people to turn out, and it's certainly true from the numbers. Um, younger people tend to have around a 20 to 40 percent turnout rate um, versus 60 plus people uh, around 60 to 70 percent. And again, uh, this is just another data point that shows younger folks need to get out there, they need to get engaged in the process, and they need to start making decisions. Um, because a lot of the decisions that are being made um, to elect leaders and, and uh, to craft policies today are going to have long-term impacts on um, the people uh, that are voting the least right now. And when you look at education, um, people with less than a high school education uh, trend between 20 and 40 percent, and then it goes up for high school grads, some college, postgraduate Post-graduates are in the 60 to 80 percent range, so they vote even more frequently than the elderly. Uh, when you break it down by race and ethnicity, um, non-Hispanic whites uh, have historically been at the top in um, the tw 2008 and 2012 elections. Uh, non-Hispanic black vote uh, actually exceeded white, and I think that's uh, you know probably partially attributed to the historic uh, you know candidate that that we had in Barack Obama. Um, but what you see consistently here is Hispanic voters um, are the lowest uh, participation turnout. Uh, so if you're out there and you have that background, uh, you know, I would really encourage you to uh, think about what that means for your community, for your families, and look at ways that you can get your friends and family and loved ones to, uh, to get out there and vote. One positive aspect of, of the voter turnout rates is uh, when you look at the share of the electorate um, that's non-Hispanic white, um, back in the 80s, uh, that, that was about 84 to 86 percent, and it's dropped down into the, uh, the uh, mid-70s. And so what this means is that uh, minority groups are starting to take a larger uh, participation in, in the entire process, which I think is a good thing um, when you consider where we've come from as a nation uh, historically and, uh, and when you look at some of the st statistics about who is most and least likely to vote, it seems like we are moving in the right direction and it would be nice to see that percentage flatten out and normalize with some of the other ethnicities. Uh, so again, to hit the high points of the voter turnout, um, People 30-plus vote at much higher rates than younger voters. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote. Um, most commonly, black and white uh, ethnicities vote more often, and Hispanics are uh, at the lowest, uh, the lowest turnout consistently since 1984. Um, and the share of non-Hispanic whites is declining, but it's still an overwhelming 77% of the vote. Uh, so... I want to encourage you guys to look at this information, check out the show notes, uh, leave me a comment if, uh, if there's anything that you want to hear more about or that you agree or disagree with. Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Love of Data or uh, on the website for theloveofdata.com. And please, uh, like I said, get involved. Uh, check out the next uh, couple of presidential debates. The one last night was pretty interesting. Uh, from a interaction standpoint, and it was actually the first presidential debate that I watched from start to finish uh, that I can remember. 
And so I'm really interested in seeing some of the visualizations that come out. I already saw one word cloud uh, that took Trump's uh, vocabulary in the debate and, and Clinton's and cast them into molds of, uh, of a Pac-Man and a ghost and showed which words were most commonly used. Um, so if you find visualizations that are interesting about politics in general, um, the race in the U.S., or uh, the debates that happened, the one that happened last night or the upcoming ones, send them along, and I'd love to share them with the rest of our listeners. Until next time, this is Robert Furr with For the Love of Data, signing off.